Acts 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land, lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, I may be stating the uh, glaringly obvious, but churches can face trouble from two different directions. They can face trouble from outside, that is, there will be those who are opposed for whatever reasons to Christianity and they will seek to hinder Christianity from growing or even halt the church altogether. Uh, We can see that in some countries around our world today where Christianity is effectively outlawed, uh, where governments are at work to shut down Christianity and to ensure uh, that Christianity doesn't grow in their country. In some countries, it's other religions that are wanting to oppose Christianity and oppose the Christian church. Rather ironically, though, those situations tend to strengthen the church. Uh, The church will often grow under that kind of trouble, that kind of difficulty. But there's also another threat that churches can face, a more subtle one, and dare I say, a more damaging one. And that is the one from inside the church. That's where people are driven by a variety of different motivations, hunger for power, pride, jealousy, hypocrisy, and that can lead to a church being divided. And that can be devastating for a church. And I'm sure that you know of those churches where that has been the case. It's not been trouble from outside the church that has split the church, but it's been trouble from inside the church that has had that effect. Well, what we're looking at today in this passage from Acts, starting there at 
towards the end of chapter 4 and going through to the end of chapter 5, is the church facing both of those struggles, facing both of those difficulties. But we open this morning with this picture of unity in the church, harmony in the church, in this new Christian community. Uh, We read it there right at the beginning of the Bible passage that was read to us. It says this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the feet of the apostles, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Kind of sounds like a hippie commune or something from the 1970s, doesn't it? Everyone's sharing everything that they've got together there. But it's quite an ideal picture, isn't it? I mean, it sounds quite pleasant. It sounds like the kind of place that you'd like to be amongst that group. It sounds great. They're all one in heart and mind. Luke says that they shared everything that they had. But it's important to notice, no one's being forced to share anything. This is not communism that's being imposed here. It's not as if there's a rule that you have to sell your property and share the proceeds. Selling everything wasn't a prerequisite to joining the church. People shared on a voluntary basis. They shared because they wanted to. They shared because they saw needs that existed within this new Christian community and they wanted to seek to meet those needs. The idea among the great Greek thinkers at the time, uh, Plato and Aristotle, was that if you could get people to share their property, then they would be unified. They would be one in heart and mind. But it's really the opposite that's happening here, isn't it? Because they're one in heart and mind, they're sharing what they have. No one views their property as their own and they're looking out for those who are in need. And they're one in heart and mind because of their faith in Jesus. They're not one in heart and mind because they all share a very similar moral code. That's not what it is. It's this trust in Jesus that has them united, working together one in heart and mind. Now, the chapter divisions in the Bible often do us a little bit of a disservice because I think verse 36 actually really belongs in the next chapter of Acts, not chapter 4. It's really the beginning of chapter 5 because this is what it says. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the feet of the apostles. Funds were getting low in the community and Barnabas saw the need, so he sold some land that he owned. Might have been his investment property, we're not exactly sure. But the funds were brought to the apostles and those funds are distributed as the apostles saw fit. But then following straight on from that, we read this story of Ananias and Sapphira. We just heard that Barnabas had brought this, this money from the sale of a property and then we read about these two who do kind of the same thing but not exactly now we don't know maybe they saw the respect that Barnabas had been given because of his actions maybe they saw the praise that was uh, awarded to him and wanted that for themselves we don't know what their motive was why they did it I, I I guess the best guess we've got is that it is just pride that they're looking for the praise of people But whatever their motive was, it's terrible consequences that ultimately result. What they did was sell the block of land, 
but only brought part of the money to the apostles. Now, let's be completely clear about this. There's nothing wrong with doing that. That wasn't what they did wrong. They didn't have to sell the block if they didn't want to. They didn't have to give any of the money to the apostles if they didn't want to. They could have chosen to sell it and just give a portion of the sale to the, the, to the church. Uh, did you see what Peter says there? Verse 4. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? See, that's what he's saying, isn't it? You didn't have to do anything with this. It's your block of land. You could have done whatever you've chosen to do. <clears throat> but giving only part of the proceeds was not their mistake. What they did wrong was they tried to deceive people. They tried to give people this false impression that they had been more generous than they really had. Now again, I want to stress, giving only part of it would have been perfectly fine. That's not the problem. The problem is that they've sought to deceive people. Hypocrisy is what stands at the heart of this. They chose to deceive the leadership of the church, to lie to them. And again, presumably in order to win the praise of those around them. I know I've told this story before, but um, I remember uh, it, it sort of fits in with what this, what's happening here. Uh, many years ago, a, a, an old guy in our church in Byron Bay was telling me that when he was a young boy, so in the 1930s in Lismore, he said that there was a wealthy businessman in the church there. And when the collection plate came around, he would reach into his wallet and he would take out a 20 pound note to place into the collection plate. Now, I actually found this, the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, actually have a website so you can figure out what the value of 20 20 pounds would have been in the 1950s, what that would be today. $1,500. That's how much it would be today. 20 pounds back in 1935 is is the worth, the equivalent of $1,500 today. So could you imagine you're sitting in the church and you see this guy in front of you, he pulls out a 20 pound note, but do you know what he did next? He waved it above his head so that everybody could see what it was that he was doing. It wasn't, it wasn't a question of taking 20 pounds out and, out and putting it into that plate. It was taking 20 pounds out, making sure everybody is aware of what it is that he's doing, and then placing the 20 pounds onto the plate. Well, Ananias and Sapphira have done a similar thing. They've brought in this bag of money, proceeds from the sale of our property, but not all of the proceeds of the sale of the property just a portion of it, but wanted to give the impression to everyone that this is the sale of the property right here. Peter knew that Ananias was lying to him. Ananias has nothing to say when Peter confronts him because he knows that it's true. And we're told that he just dropped dead right there. Clearly shocked all of the people around us, around them. Luke says, great fear seized all of those who heard what happened. That would be the right response, I'm sure. But then Ananias' body is taken away and then his wife arrives three hours later and Peter confronts her and she tries the same lie and she meets the same fate. She drops dead right there. Again, it would have been a good reading to have just before the collection, this one, wouldn't it? might have helped us sort out a few issues here at church. But what are we supposed to make of all of this? Well, I think the first thing that we're supposed to see is that everything's not perfect in this early church. 
I mean, Luke wants to give us a warts and all account. He's just told us at the end of chapter 4 how brilliant things were in the church, how everyone was looking out for the needs of everybody else and that they're all one in heart and mind. I think he's wanting to counterbalance that and say, but it's not to say that we don't have problems. We do. The early church had just as many problems as any church. Luke doesn't want to give us the impression that everything was perfect in the early church. But I think when you read through a passage like this, I think your first instinct is to say, this kind of sounds like something I should be reading in the Old Testament, not here in the New Testament. And it's funny that you should think that, because I think that there is a story in the Old Testament that helps actually shed a little bit of light and help explain what's happening here in Acts. It's a story that comes from Joshua chapter 7. Now, I'm going to forgive you if you don't know the story. It's a fairly obscure little story in the book of Joshua, and you can have a read of it later on when you get home. It involves a man called Achan. But there's some similarities, some very big similarities between what happened there in Joshua 7 and what happens here in Acts chapter 5. Both of these stories are preceded by the great salvation events for God's people. In the book of Joshua, they've just been rescued from Egypt. This is the big salvation event for God's Old Testament people. They've just been rescued from Egypt and they are heading into the promised land. Both stories are at a crucial time when God is gathering his people together to be his people. For Israel, it's moving into the promised land. For the early Christians, it's the very beginning days of the church. In fact, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the first time that Luke uses the word that we translate as church. It's there in verse number 11 of chapter 5. This is a significant moment in the life of God's church. Both the stories have something to do with things that have been devoted to God, dedicated to God, but then withheld by deception. And in both of the stories, it's the leaders of God's people, as well as God himself, who is being deceived. Well, the episode concludes there in verse 11. It says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And there's a sense in which fear is the appropriate response, isn't it? And it's the appropriate response to God as well. Not not your runaway and hide type fear, but awe, reverence, respect type fear. He's the creator of the universe, for goodness sake. He's the judge of the whole world. Like Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. You want to live wisely in this world, you've got to realise who God is and who you are. Something that Ananias and Sapphira seem to have failed to do. Now, I think the take-home message for us sitting today, sitting here today is this. Being part of God's people is a serious thing. It's not to be taken lightly. There's no place for trying to fool God or pretend to be something that you're not. There's no place for half-heartedness in the faith of God's people. We serve God. The God who called us to be his people, the God who saved us, and the God who will judge this world. Now, if you think it seems a little harsh what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, well, what do you think people deserve if they try to to, to deceive God? 
Well, that's the trouble inside the church. And then we come to the trouble outside of the church, starting in chapter 5 from verse 12 onwards. Luke tells us the apostles were doing their usual bit. They've gone to the temple and they're telling people about Jesus and all of the events that have just happened just recently for them, that Jesus had been put to death and raised back to life. And again, the religious leaders, the Sadducees this time, a very small group and a group that we don't know terribly much about, uh, they are the ones who are upset, probably upset that Jesus, that these guys are preaching about the resurrection because they don't believe in the resurrection. And the other interesting thing, the only, one of the only other facts that we know about the Sadducees is that they don't believe in angels, which for me is really just confirmation that God has an extraordinarily good sense of humour. Because look at what we read after they are arrested in verse number 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail, but during the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Now, for a group of people who don't believe in angels, God could have just opened the doors, but that's not what he chose to do. He chose to send an angel to open the doors, a messenger to open the doors. Following morning, the Sanhedrin meets and they are going to deal with these apostles again. So they send the guards down to the jail to bring the apostles back up. This time, all of the apostles, as we can understand, guards get down there and the apostles aren't there. Now, try and put yourself into the shoes of the apostles. You've been arrested, you've been put into jail for preaching about Jesus in the temple courts. What are you going to do when you get released? Well, what they do is they head straight back to the temple courts to tell more people about Jesus. It's really testimony to the conviction of these people, isn't it? That they know that this is an important message. This is not just a hobby for them. This has now transformed their lives and they want other people to know about it as well. Now they're brought into the Sanhedrin and I think it's pretty safe to assume that Peter hasn't done any conflict resolution courses recently because the way that he approaches this, by verse 33, they're wanting to kill them. That's how much he has upset them again. But then a man by the name of Gamaliel speaks up. He gets the apostles sent outside and he addresses the Sanhedrin and presents this idea for how they might be able to proceed. He reminds them that there's been two uprisings before, two men who've appeared in Jerusalem, who've gathered a group of people around them, but as soon as the leader died, the organisation died. And so his advice is there in verse 38. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop it. You'll find yourselves fighting against God. Interesting piece of advice, isn't it? He says, there's been two uprisings before. As soon as we killed the leader, that's it. They're gone. They disappear. And if it's the same thing again, that's what will happen with these guys. So just leave them alone. Well, they're brought back into the Sanhedrin. Seems like they couldn't quite just leave them alone. They felt they had to beat them before they sent them back out and warn them again that they weren't to preach about Jesus. But they're released. The end of the Ananias and Sapphira story, we're told that there's great fear that sees the people. But when we read about this beating at the hands of the Sanhedrin, it's not fear that's gripping the people. 
joy. They've been counted worthy to suffer the disgrace for the name. See it there in verse number 41? The apostles left the Sanhedrin, just having been beaten, rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name, for Jesus' sake. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Perhaps not the response that you would expect, certainly not the response the Sanhedrin wanted, but clearly the response that the apostles knew they needed to make. So what's the take-home message from this episode? If the take-home message from the Ananias and Sapphira one is being part of God's church is a serious thing, what do we do with this passage? Well, I think we can safely say that none of us are ever going to face anything like these guys faced because of their faith in Jesus. If you continue to live in this country for the rest of your days, I think I can confidently say we're never going to experience anything like that here. But we may face opposition because of what we believe. There will be people who don't share our belief in Jesus. There may be some people who will criticise you or possibly even ridicule you because of your faith in Jesus. Some people are going to think you're just plain stupid. Remember someone talking to me not so long ago wanted to know how in my mind I justified the existence of that little friend of mine. And I, I, I was truly baffled. I said, what little friend? And he said, you know, the one you all get together to sing about on Sundays. I thought, goodness me, that's a, it's an interesting thing to say. But if we do face those sorts of things, we need to be ready to face it. Don't avoid it by running away. We need to share the same conviction that the apostles had, that this message is actually worth standing up for. This is an important message. This is a life-changing message. It's changed our lives. And we need to be ready to endure whatever difficulties we may face because of that faith in Jesus. There's a great example here, isn't it, amongst these guys? That they're thrown into jail, brought before the Sanhedrin, beaten, and what do they do? They rejoice that they've actually been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. And there's a verse in Hebrews that I think sums up quite nicely how we can respond to what these men have done. It says this in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses apostles who go through all of that let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us 